Well, last week in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5, 1 Timothy, Paul reminded us that in the latter days, the days that we are now living in, the time between the first and second coming of Jesus, in those latter days, the church would be faced with false teaching. And Paul warns Timothy about that and the effect that it can have. He warns him and says, it's coming. And here's the effect that it can have, the bad effect, the harmful effect it could have on the life of the congregation. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6-10, through 10, Paul turns his attention on Timothy as the, the minister, as the, the pastor of these people. What Paul, inspired by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has to say, I want to acknowledge, is very much directed to Timothy as the overseer, as the pastor of this local congregation. Paul is going to point out to Timothy the qualities of a good servant. For those of you who may be right now breathing a sigh of relief because you're thinking this passage is for the preacher, the pastor, listen carefully. Don't you check out. You as a Christian are not out of the scope of Paul's focus here in this passage. Even those passages that are directed toward ministers have something to say to all Christians. All Christians are called to be good servants of the Lord. And so there's something for every Christian to learn in this passage today. Not just the pastor, not just the minister, the overseer, but all Christians learn from this passage. And what we learn is what makes a servant good or what makes a good servant. So if you're looking at your handout, you'll see the main idea here, the qualities for becoming a good servant. I dare say if I I went around to each of you and said, do you want to be a good servant? I would be really surprised if I had someone say, no, I could care less. If your heart is to be a good servant for Jesus, then this is for you today. Verse 6, our handout outlines this, a good servant of Jesus teaches others the truth. A good servant of Jesus teaches others the truth. Yeah, the the pastor does that, but we are all, whether we realize it or not, we're all teachers. And we need to be teaching the truth. Verse 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers, notice how that begins, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ, Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice the first words. Or first, I want you to notice, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's Paul's focus here. Being a good servant. And you will be a good servant if you do these things. Notice there the word servant. In the, in the Greek, it's the word diakonos. Some translations use the word minister. You may have a translation that uses that word. Diakonos is where we get our English word. Anybody want to guess? Deacon. Yeah. Which means what? Servant. However, servant here is not used in a technical sense in referring to the office of a deacon. Although Timothy is the pastor, Paul is not using servant or minister here in thinking of Timothy as a deacon or pastor of a church. Here Paul is using the word in the widest sense possible. A good servant of Jesus. Let me tell you something. Before anyone ever becomes a minister or a pastor, they're always first and foremost a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They're never a pastor and then they become a servant. You are a servant first and foremost before you are ever a pastor. In in that sense, the word servant includes everyone. It includes all of us sitting here today. All who profess Jesus as Savior and Lord are called to be servants. No one gets an escape from this. Everyone who professes the name of Christ is called to be a servant. Listen to me. Especially if you are in any ministry of teaching, leading, or discipling someone within the life of the church. All of us are called to be servants. But listen, especially, especially if you are in any ministry of teaching or leading or discipling someone within the church. Paul says to Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That really is the theme of uh, actually the whole section from verse 6 down to verse 16. That's kind of the, the main theme that's going on here. For Timothy is a pastor and anyone who professes Christ is Savior and Lord. You are a servant. Now notice the words, if you put these things before the brothers. And, and just so we don't forget, notice the word Brothers. This is a reminder that the church is God's family. This is God's household. Back to chapter 3, verse 15. Paul does not use that word casually like you and I do. There is something going on here. Brothers, people of God, family of God. If you put these things before the brothers, what what are the words these things refer to? When you see that, you, you should be asking... What is that talking about? These things points us back to the false teaching that Paul's talking about in verses 1 through 5. Timothy put these things, the things I've just talked about in false teaching, you put these things. You're a good servant, Timothy, if you, you put these things. The word put there is extremely important. It has the idea of putting into remembrance. And just so we forget. What is the one thing that we're most often referred to as in the Bible? Christians? And we're what? Go ahead and say it. Sheep are dumb. You've got to constantly be reminding the shepherd. Stop and think about it. He has to be a patient person, does he not? Man. They go after those sheep and they do the same thing every single day. And he's constantly having to go after them. And Paul says, Timothy, you've got you to put these things into remembrance. It's an ongoing thing, Timothy. Timothy's to teach these things to the brothers, the people of God. Doing so makes for a good servant. Being aware of and warning God's people about false teaching makes for a good and faithful servant. He'll be a good servant of the Lord Jesus if he warns his congregation about these things. And again... He's talking to Timothy as a minister here, but that word minister or that word servant includes all of us, right? So we'll be good servants if we're constantly listening and warning and, and being aware of those things that are false and, and teaching others. I want to make the point here, the guy that stands in the pulpit on Sunday and your Sunday school teacher are not the only ones that has a responsibility of teaching people. We all have a responsibility to teach people. That's part of discipling, helping one another know Christ better and follow Him. He's a good servant if He warns about these things. Look again at verse 6, in the second half of verse 6. Good, faithful servants are what? Trained. Good and faithful servants are trained. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
Some translations, you may have a translation that uses the word nourished. Both refer to caring for and feeding. Good servants of Christ Jesus care for and they, they feed themselves. Good servants are trained. They nourish themselves. You're never going to teach anyone anything or about anything unless you've done what? First trained yourself and nourished yourself on that. You'll never teach people the truth about Jesus and the gospel and His Word if you don't nourish yourselves, if you don't train yourselves. Good servants are trained on what? They're trained on the words of the faith and of good doctrine. So we never have to ask ourselves, to be a good servant, what do I need to train myself in? What do I need to nourish myself on? He says here, the words of the faith and of good doctrine. In other words, excuse me, good servants are trained on solid biblical teaching. They're, they're nourished on the words of the faith and good doctrine. Listen, that word trained is in the present tense. A good servant needs to be continually training and nourishing himself on the words of faith and good doctrine. How often? How often is continually? Always continually. A good servant needs to continually be training and nursing himself. It's a continual process of self-feeding by reading and reading and inwardly digesting and meditating on the Word of God. Meditating, that's a word we don't hear very often anymore, right? Meditate. Preacher, that makes my head hurt to do that. Can I let you know on a secret? If you do it more often, it won't hurt as much. Everything hurts a little bit when you haven't done it for a while or you first start doing it, right? But the more you do it, the less it'll hurt. It's absolutely essential that you feed your mind on God's Word. You want to be a good servant? Train yourself. Nourish yourself. And this has a point when we get to the end of why we want to do this. Continually training and nursing. It's a continual process of feeding yourself and reading Meditating. It's essential that you keep your mind on God's Word through every means available to you. I'm sorry. Maybe not every means available to you. You would need to be careful. And by every means, I I mean by hearing God's Word preached, uh, by reading, by studying, by memorizing, and again, meditating. God's Word shows us what God is like and how He wants us to live. Reading the Bible, I understand. Parts of it, you're just kind of like, when you read it, you're kind of like... Here's my question for you. If you could pick up the Bible and read it from Genesis to Revelation and understand everything in there and it just be there, what would you do? You'd lay that Bible down and you'd never pick it up again. By the way, you're, that's never going to happen to you. But if you could do that, if God allowed you to understand everything, what would your thought be as a human being? I don't need to read that anymore. I just lay it down and I'm good to go. You would take for granted those things. A good servant is trained in the truths, the words of the faith. Those words there refers to, at a minimum, at a minimum, the essentials of the gospel. Go back to chapter 3, verse 16. What does it say there? Here's the, the bare essentials. 
He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus became a man. He was vindicated by the Spirit. After He died on the cross for our sins, He was risen from the dead by the Spirit of God. He was seen by angels. And now what, what do we do with that? It's proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then Jesus is taken up into glory. At a bare minimum, we need to know the gospel, the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have to essentially know that to be a good servant. And even more there, the words of the faith. That, that's, that's Scripture, the body of Christian truth contained in the Bible. We are to attempt to master the Scriptures. Notice I said attempt, right? We'll never do it. But that's something we pursue. Christians need to be able to think biblically and comprehend biblically and speak biblically. As much as I love having you here on Sunday morning, listening to the preaching... This is not all you need. You need it more and more and more and more. Good doctrine. That word causes, sometimes that word causes us to shudder, right? Oh, doctrine. Here we go again. Doctrine. Don't be afraid of that word. You know what doctrine means? Teaching. The teaching of the truth. It means what the Bible teaches. And if you're a Christian, I dare say you would not say to me, well, I don't know what the Bible teaches. Sure we do. Then doctrine is important. Christian, you need, you need doctrine. So first he says the words of the faith, Scripture, and then he says doctrine. The, the theology that comes out of that and the application of that biblical truth to your life. That's what doctrine is. The teaching of the Bible, the understanding of that, and then taking it and doing what with it? Applying it and, and living it out in your life. Look again at verse 6. <coughs> Trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Listen to what it says. That you have what? Followed. You know the story of Timothy. Timothy was uh, taught by who? Lois and Eunice, his grandmother. Oh, so Timothy didn't wait till he went to seminary and became a pastor to be taught the Word of God. He was taught when? When he was a child. Trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice how Paul combines the two important elements. Knowledge, trained, and decision. Followed. See, we can learn all we think we need to know from the Bible, but you, haven't, you don't really know it unless you what? Unless you do it. You, you need the good, sound words of the faith and good, sound teaching, and then you follow that. First you learn, and then you do what it says. That's the recipe for being a good servant. Nourishing, feeding, and then doing what it says. Give yourself to training. Nourish yourself and feed upon the truth of the Bible and then follow it. For those of you who have your Bible in your hands, look down at that. I want you to look at it. You hold in your hands the greatest book ever written. You realize there's some people in this world who don't even have a copy of the Bible? Because they don't even have it in their own language to read it. 
And if it's in their language, it has to be smuggled into them. You hold in your hands the greatest book ever written, the most amazing book in all the world, the only place in all of humanity, in all of human history, where you are given the undiluted truth. This is truth. You don't have to doubt a thing about it. For you, Christian, no book is more important to learn to feed upon than the Word of God. And I know what some of you are thinking. Man, that's a big book. It's a big book. It takes a lot of reading. It takes a lot of studying, a lot of thinking and meditating to grasp what it says. Most of us are just lazy, right? It's too hard. It's too hard, preacher. I can't read that thing. It just... I just can't do it. And I know some of you are saying right now, and I've, I know this because I've heard it many times in many places. Preacher, I'm just not a reader. And somebody wasted their time sending you to school then, didn't they? You, I'm just not a reader. If you're not a reader, then learn to be a reader. I never liked reading a whole lot as a, a young boy because there were just more important things to do, right, than read. I remember God called me into ministry and I began to think, man, you really got to read. You, you got to study. And then when I got to seminary and they gave me five books in one class, I said, you need to read these. And I'm thinking, okay. And then I go to the next class and they give me five more, so you need to read these this semester. And I go to the third and fourth class and they give me four or five books and I'm thinking, I got to read all these? And then you want me to read my Bible too. Almost anyone can learn to be a reader. That may be a necessary step in disciplining yourself. And in the meantime, here's what I'd say. Get the Bible on tape and at least listen to it every day. If you don't have a regular time in the Word, set a realistic goal and stick with it. Start out with 15 minutes a day, reading the Bible 15 minutes a day and praying for 5 or 10 minutes a day. That's realistic, right? Listen, I know what some of you are thinking. You've got at least 15 or 20 minutes you can spend with God and read the Scriptures and pray. And then once you've done that, when you get consistent, then you increase your time. But you need spiritual nourishment from the Word. Listen, you need this as much as you need to eat to stay alive. The issue is, this is something else I want to point out here when it comes to teaching The issue is not how good a communicator someone is. Now, listen to me. I remember in seminary I had one professor tell me that a a pastor has not ten commandments, but eleven commandments. I was like, where's that eleventh one at? He says, thou shalt not bore thy brother with the word of God. Now that's true. But the issue is not how good or great a communicator someone. The issue is how well they know the Word of God and then give that to you. You see, we're a generation of people who, 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 who like to sit and not even think. We just want to be entertained, right? That's who we are. We want to be entertained. We don't want to have to think. Just let me sit here and be a mushroom and just kind of nothing come in, nothing go out. 
So there's a drift toward entertaining people instead of teaching people. We're to be committed to the understanding and the study and the communication of God's Word. Why? Because we grow in the Word. We grow through the Word, and there's no substitute for this. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, says this, We show that we believe, excuse me, we show what we believe about the Bible by the way we love the Bible. We show what we believe about the Bible by the way we love the Bible. Verses 7 9. A good servant of Jesus trains for godliness. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Have nothing to do with. That means reject. Put it out of the way. Discipline for a good servant means getting rid of hindrances. Reject hindrances. Put away. Put away what? Irreverent, silly myths. Some of you have a translation that reads, Old Wives' Fables. Or, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. Now, older Christian ladies, Paul's not making an insult about you here, okay? Let's just get that squared away. This is not an insult toward older Christian women. What this is, it's a sarcastic label that was used when someone wanted to ridicule someone else's belief. That's what this means. They would call it an old woman's myth. That's something a senile old woman would tell a child. It's a fairy tale. What it does is indicates a lack of credibility. That phrase means the opposite of the Word of God. Anything that contradicts the Word of God have nothing to do with it. That word irreverent means unholy. What he's saying here is you you are to be nourished up in the words of the faith and the good doctrine, but you're to refuse the opposite, the bad stuff. And I want to say this. The Christian life is not about you being the best that you can be now. That's not what the Christian life's about. And I think you know who I'm talking about. That is not what God intends for you in being a good servant, is that you are the best you can be now. Teaching that's always talking about you is not good teaching. He says the good servant has nothing to do with silly myths because they only serve to cause questions rather than godly edifying and building up. A good servant is not interested in anything that's going to distract or create doubt or take away his conviction. Anything that's going to confuse him. Look at verse 7 again. Rather... Train yourself for godliness. A good servant is disciplined in personal godliness. Here that word train means exercise. Some of you are going, oh, I don't like that word. Exercise. It's where we get our English word gymnasium from. The word means, as I said, to exercise or to train yourself in an athletic effort, which means a painstaking strenuous, self-sacrificing kind of training. Exercise yourself. Strenuously, painstaking, exercise yourself for what? Godliness. You want to be godly? It's going to take some blood, sweat, and tears, right? In the Word of God. 
Going to training for godliness. Going to training for your soul. Train yourself, it says, for godliness. Again, that's in the present tense. Keep yourself in training for godliness. Keep disciplining yourself unto holiness. Listen, it's a lifelong process as a Christian. Paul is saying, work out for godliness. Deliberately practice and train with a view of cultivating the spiritual worship in your life. We are to actively pursue, we are to actively cultivate godliness in our life. He's telling us to discipline ourselves that we might live the life of a good servant. And here's what I want to say. <clears throat> discipline. And that's a, that's a hard word for us, right? There's a lot of areas in life we have to be disciplined in. But it happens in the Christian life as well. And here's what I want to tell you. Discipline does not make the Christian life easy, but it makes it easier. It doesn't make the Christian life easy, but it makes it easier. So the issue is being a good servant for Jesus. There's godliness involved there. It isn't how clever you are. It isn't how persuasive you are. It isn't about how good a communicator you are. It is, do you know the Word of God? Do you have a pure mind? And are you godly? Because serving Jesus as a servant is an overflow of knowing the Word of God. Look at verse 8. Let me stop here. Training in godliness. Training. You know, the last couple of weeks, I've been watching the Olympics. And all my life, I've always been fascinated by those downhill skiers. You ever watch that? Man, that amazes me. Kind of sit there and I'm like, how do they do that? It's amazing. 80 miles an hour down that hill. Just, you know, when they show that picture of that mountain, you see those little white squiggly lines and you're going, really, they're going down that? And man, they're 80 miles an hour, they're in and out of those gates. And you watch that. They just didn't wake up one day, hey, I'm going to be a downhill skier, right? What if somebody come to you and said, hey, read this book, watch this video, and you can do that too. You know what? You would deserve the fall that most assuredly would await you when you got on those skis. <laughs> It takes training for those people to get to where they're at. Effort, sacrifice, discipline. It's the same thing for us as Christians. There's, there's discipline involved. Look at verse 8. The good servant of Jesus realizes the value of becoming more like Christ. Paul tells us that we're to prize godliness. We're to value. We're to hold dearly. We're to think highly of. We're to think much of and treasure godliness. Notice he says, For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Man, I would mark that verse. I would mark, put, put a dot by it if that's all you do in a pencil where you can erase it later if you don't like marking your Bible. Notice first, bodily training is of what? How much value? A whole bunch of value? Some value. Now, listen, I don't want to contradict myself here. It is good for us to take care of our physical bodies. Exercising is a good thing to do. All of us should want to take care of ourselves. I exercise. You know why? Because I've reached a point in life where I can think about food or smell it and I gain weight. I don't even have to eat it anymore. Just 
kind of puts it on. Paul says physical exercise is of some value. Some translations read bodily exercise profits little. What does that mean? It is of some value, listen, in two ways. The extent and the duration. Extent, it's only good for the physical body. Duration, it's only good for a time. You know, I watched uh, uh, me and David yesterday a little uh, segment on a couple of Olympic skiers. Debbie Thomas and Katerina Vitt. Figure skaters, I'm sorry. And it was talking about them in the 1988 Calgary Olympics. This is just the reality of life, folks. You watch them skating, and they're kind of like a, a stick out there, spinning and doing their thing. And then they showed in the day, and I was like, whoa. What happened? And I'm going, the same thing's happening to me. All that they did, only what? It was of some value, but it had a limit, right? Excessive, excessive physical training has value only for the body and only for a brief time, and that's it. And people spend hours and hours and hours on something that is short-lived. And it's not... There's a lot of things that we do that with. Look at verse 8 again. Godliness is a value in what? Some way? Every way. How is godliness valuable in every way? As it holds promise, notice this, for the present life and also for the life to come. Oh, there's not an end to this. It's good now and it'll be good when? Even into eternal life. If you want to work on something, work on godliness. Godliness is profitable not just to the body, but to the body and the soul. It's profitable not just for a brief time, but for a lifetime and for eternity. If you're going to go to the gym, and again, I'm not discounting that, I go. If you're going to the gym for a better physical well-being, that's well and good. But that is not the priority unless that fits somewhere at the bottom of your priority list. Here's what I would say. Make a decision to spend time in the Word of God every day and cultivate godliness because godliness is profitable for all things. All things, spiritual things, for time and eternity. Most of us, would we would jump on anything that we would know that would guarantee us good now and good into eternal life, right? Paul is saying, as important as it is to take care of yourselves, do that, but remember that your spiritual discipline, your, phys- your spiritual exercise, your spiritual workout makes a difference in this life and in the life to come. And here's a way I'd say to apply this. The goal of godliness demands that you spend time each day with God in word and prayer. Start small, and when you get consistent, grow that. Here's what I hear a lot. And again... I want to be perfectly honest with you and transparent. I do my dead level best to spend time in God's Word every single day. I don't get up at 5 because I like getting up at 5. I get up at 5 because I need to spend time with God before I spend time in His Word to feed you. There's other things I need to read and study. Other parts of the Bible I need to read and study. I don't like getting up that time of morning. No. But you know what I've learned? 
When that clock goes off, I get out of the bed and put my clothes on immediately. Because if I don't, you know what happens? I go back to sleep. And then I stagger into the kitchen, hit the button on the coffee pot, get it warmed up, go sit on the couch and just kind of turn the lights on. As many lights as I can get on. Because I know if I don't, I'm going to go back to sleep. There's a discipline that takes place there. And some of you go, and I've heard this, I just don't have... Go ahead. Time. Yeah. My schedule will not allow it. It's not a matter of having a schedule because you have one. We all have the same number of hours in our day, right? How many hours a day you got? 24? How many you got? Anybody in here got less than 24 hours a day? We need to talk. Okay? (laughs) We all have the same number of hours in our day. We all... Listen. I hear my daddy saying this now. We all make time for what we want to make time for. We do what we want to do. I've heard that so many times in my life I just got to where I wouldn't even go because I knew what I was going to hear. I'd say it to myself before I thought about going. We do what we want to do. The question is, is your schedule in line with your goal of becoming a godly person? That's the point. Paul didn't wish he had time for reading, for prayer and meditation. He took time. He made time for it. He underlines this in verse 9. Notice what it says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The saying there refers back to, <coughs> excuse me, verse 8. The statement of verse 8 is so obvious that in verse 9, he calls it a trustworthy saying and deserving, excuse me, of full acceptance. Paul uses the words, this saying is trustworthy, five different times in the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy and Titus. It means it's a it's a trustworthy statement. It's something that's clearly obvious. Everybody knows that bodily exercise is good for a little time, whereas spiritual training is good for the soul now and forever. Paul says everybody knows that. Or at least they should. Here's what I'd say as a way of application. In the church, there should be a group of people who are in training And what they're in training for is their soul. Anybody want to go to the Seoul Olympics? That's the Olympics I'd be shooting for. They're in training to be conformed to the will of God, that they can be godly because that benefits for now and for eternity. Paul, now in verse 10, gives us a very important word about the motivation. What is going to motivate you to do this? <clears throat> Amid all the pressures and demands of life, all the hurriedness of our schedules, what is going to make you <clears throat> excuse me, take time to nourish yourself in the words of faith and feed on daily and decide to follow it and to do something? Here's the answer, verse 10. A good servant is motivated by a global task. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. For to this end, what end? Training ourselves for godliness. Being godly requires, what does Paul say? For to this end to be godly, we what? Say it with me. Toil and strive. When you hear those words, what do you think? Energy, effort, decision, 
commitment, action, right? When the grass needs mowing, you don't sit on the couch and toil and strive, do you? You get up and you go. Here's what I want to tell you. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I have to say, listen to this. You will not drift into godliness. You'll not drift into that. You can't get up in the morning and do your thing all day long and grow and nurse yourself on the sound words of the faith. You have to set yourself to this. You have to choose time, make time, commit yourself to some time studying, meditating, and some time in prayer. Pursue godliness. What motivates you? Paul says because we have our hope set on the living God. We have our hope set on an encounter with the living God. When you open this up, this is the very mind of God. And you get to encounter Him through that. Train yourself in godliness draws you near to God. It deepens your relationship with the living God. Can I be honest with you? Seven years of theological training and studying to prepare and preach sermons every week, and I read this some days and I go, I just don't understand. And then that drives me to dependence on God. God, I, I, don't even, I don't even know where to begin to understand this. What is that? Toil and strive. Train yourself in God. This draws you near to God. The second part of our motivation. The living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. One, it's an encounter with the living God. We toil and strive... Secondly, to see men, women, and children come to Christ to have eternal life. We the church, that's why we're here. We have a burden for the global task of seeing lost people come to Christ and then them being taught to follow Him. The work of the gospel is a struggle. How hard of a task do you think it is to reach 3 billion people who are lost? Right? Now you know why they call it a great commission. Because it's going to take God doing it, but He uses us to do that. We toil and strive to see people come to Christ. We have a burden for lost souls. We toil and we strive for God's glory among the nations. And here's what I would say. We, the church, we must not rest until every person, every unreached people group, until our co-workers, our classmates, our neighbors, our loved ones have heard the good news of salvation from sin and deliverance from God's judgment through Christ. Who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe? Who's the Savior, church? Here it says God, but Jesus. God, Jesus, yes. God is the Savior of all men. Notice what it says there. God is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. What does Paul mean? We know that he does not mean that all people will be saved. As much as I would love to stand up here and say everyone who's ever lived is going to be saved and go to heaven. But that would be a lie. Paul doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. The Bible is clear, not everyone is going to be saved. What Paul does mean is that God wants to save all types of people in every place from every walk of life. In other words, He's provided salvation for all. But it's only applied to who? Those who believe. 
Salvation from sin, salvation from God's judgment comes by grace through faith. Jesus and no one else has made that possible. There is no other Savior. God, Jesus, is the Savior of all men. In other words, there is no one else. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, again, this will be another good place for you to mark and and, and talking to people about the Gospel. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby men can be saved. What, What are they saying there? There is nobody else. Jesus is the Savior of all men. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the Savior of all men, but only those who believe. Faith in Christ. Turning from sin, trusting in Jesus. Those who believe. Jesus, life, death, and resurrection does not automatically usher by in the kingdom of heaven. If that was the case, then we wouldn't need to give money and send missionaries, right? Everybody's in. We just hang out together and wait. Now here's my question for you. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that you're hopelessly lost without Him? Have you repented of your sin, and do you believe that you're only forgiven and made acceptable for God through faith in Christ? Do you believe that? Do you know for sure that you're headed for eternity in heaven with Christ? It only happens one way, through Jesus. Turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. Acts 4.12 says there is nobody else. There is no other way. There is no other way to eternal life. I dare say everyone we would ever encounter in our walk of life has some sense of eternity within them. They want to know, how does that happen? How do we get there? The Bible says there's no other name given among men whereby men can be saved and have eternal life but through Christ. Believing Christian, discipline is essential in order to be godly. You're not going to drift into it. It's just not going to happen. And godliness is essential because eternity is certain. There are no shortcuts, no easy, effortless ways to godliness. If you fixed your hope on the living God who is the Savior, can you do anything less than discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Is that happening in your life? Do you wholly lean on Jesus' name all day long? That is what happens when you're nourished on the words of the faith and in sound doctrine of the Word of God and follow it. You train yourself in godliness. You wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray.